Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In 2019, Convention of States President Mark Meckler spoke to a group of Convention of States volunteers and legislators in Mississippi. Later that year, Mississippi became the 15th state to officially pass the Convention of States resolution. Uh, I want to tell you a story about a volunteer because you're all volunteers. Uh, and one of the things that's so interesting about being a grassroots activist, and I've met a lot of us all across the country, all are grassroots activists, is very few of us thought that this is something that we would get engaged in. Like we didn't wake up one morning and think, you know, I aspire to be a grassroots activist and make phone calls to politicians and go down to the Capitol. It's certainly not something I ever aspired to. I, I didn't intend to get into politics. And I think that's where most of us come from. And around uh, six years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. A really incredible opportunity. There were three couples. And one of the things we did is that we went to Gideon Spring. And if you've been there, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Gideon Spring, but if you've been there, it's not impressive, <laughs> right? So this is a place in the Holy Land that they actually know exactly where it is. If you go to the Holy Land, a lot of times they'll tell you this happened there, this happened there, and they kind of sort of maybe know. A lot of times Catholic churches put up something where they charge you to go in, they think they know. But the reality is they don't know where most of the stuff exactly took place. But Gideon Spring is in a place where there are no other springs in this area. Right? And so it's been there through all of history. This is a spring that human beings have used to nourish themselves, to, prov to provide clean water for themselves. So I got to go. And when I arrived there, the first thing I noticed is there's nothing there. <laughs> there's no monument to Gideon at Gideon Spring. At first, I was outraged by this. I thought, this is, I mean, unbelievable. It's a biblical site. There should be a shrine. And then I thought, wait, wait, hold on a second. This is Gideon, right? This is important. Here's why it's important, for me anyway. You know, if you, if you think about Gideon's story from the Bible, Gideon, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, what's he doing? He's hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat. If you've ever seen a wine press and a threshing floor, they're nothing alike. The idea of hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat is ridiculous. He was doing it because he was a coward, because that's how he saw himself. He was hiding, right? And he was worried about the Midianites, so he was hiding in there doing this, uh, this thing, and and the angel comes to him and says he wants him to, the Lord wants him to raise up a mighty army. And what's he say? Me? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Which is rational. He's hiding, right? And so he's look, like looking over his shoulder. You got the wrong guy. Questions God. But he ends up, he's the right guy. He's the guy that gets picked for the mission. So I think that end of the Gideon story is really important to me. For anybody who volunteers in politics, whether you've run for office a lot of folks who run for office, they don't intend to run for office. They didn't grow up thinking they were going to be a politician. They felt a calling to serve. Something called them to office. They volunteered in spite of their more rational self. They stepped up to run for office. So this is Gideon's situation. And Gideon raises up a mighty army. He raises up 30,000 men. A mighty army, not that mighty compared to the army he was going to fight. We stood there in those hills over the plains, and you could see the two hills where the Midianites were camped, and our guide said, imagine 250,000 people. That's a good-sized city, 250,000 people. And he said, imagine the smoke and the smell and the noise and the fear and how it must have felt. And Gideon's told the army's too big. You have to call the army. And so you guys know the story he goes through, and he calls the army, and ultimately 300 men are left to go into that fight. And that part of the story is so important to me. It's not the victory that's important to me. It's that the reason for 
culling the army down to 300 is so that Gideon and his warriors would know that no matter what happened, when they had a mighty victory, that all glory belonged to God. This is a really important thing in politics, and it's a rare thing that people recognize this. I've had the privilege to come up in politics over the last 10 years. I've had the privilege to be in the media, to travel around the country, to grow a couple of organizations, to raise a bunch of money. And one of the things the Gideon story reminds me is that I'm not very important. It's not about me. And I've watched a lot of people, and I know the colonel's seen this, and I know you guys see it in your own state house. You watch people rise up in politics and they come in, maybe even because they're called for the right reason as they rise up, People tell them how wonderful they are. People tell them how special they are. People tell them how smart they are. People vote for them. They get elected. They get reelected. The cameras point in their faces, and they're mesmerized by the shine of the lens, and they forget that all glory belongs to God. And pretty soon, when they look in the mirror at night, Colonel, they're thinking, I'm pretty good. <laughs> right? And so the Gideon story is really important to me, for me personally, and for all of us. It's so important to me that when I came home from Israel, and a lot of you guys have seen inside of my house and you know a little bit about my life and you've met my dogs, my Great Danes, and one of them is named Gideon. And I got him when I came home from Israel because I wanted to be reminded every single day, dozens of times a day, to say Gideon so that I remember where the glory belongs. This is really important for us as an organization. So this is a strange political organization because we call ourselves a service organization. It's a weird thing. I've never heard any other organization engage in politics call themselves a service organization. Uh, one of our founders, one of the guys on my board, one of my mentors, the guy that helped me come to Christ late in life, his name is Tim Dunn. And when we founded this organization, he said this to me. He said, we're going to do politics differently. We're not a Christian organization per se. That's not our outward face. But we're going to do politics in a Christian way. And what I mean by that is we're always going to be nice. We're always going to be kind. We're always going to be polite to people. It doesn't mean you don't say the hard things and be direct with people, but you do it with a loving heart and a kind heart, and you act out of kindness always. And he told me, and he and I just had an email exchange about this because this is five years in now. He said, people will tell us you cannot do that. And a lot of people have told us that we cannot do that. But we have done that. We have done it to the tune now of we just hit 3.8 million people across the country you guys are in every state legislative district in the United States of America. We just passed 1.2 million petitions of people who are in support of Convention of States, raised millions of dollars. We've had an impact on people and legislatures all over the country being kind. It's not complicated. All of our national team meetings are now 40 employees on staff all around the country. Garrett back there is our cameraman's on our national staff. Every meeting opens in prayer. That's not a rule, by the way. I never said, hey, you know, we have to open every meeting in prayer. It happened. We didn't plan it this way. This meeting opened in prayer. There's no rule about that in Convention of States. It's just how people are. And I think this is a really important thing to bring to politics because I think politics is severely lacking in kindness, in, in Christian kindness, right? And so that's who we are, and that's where we come from. We do this because we love our country. We do it because we serve God. We serve each other. We serve the grassroots, we serve the mission, and we're going to get this done. But that's, I just want you to understand where it comes from. And the reason that's so important to me is, so we had a hard conversation with Tate Reeves today. It was polite, it was kind, but it was very direct. The colonel was direct, I was direct, I expect you all to be direct. When you're direct, always be kind. I'm going to close with a story, so Gideon's my volunteer, but I want to close with a story about what you guys do as volunteers. So... 
I was in the Arkansas legislature last week and, and a couple weeks before and a couple weeks before. You all know Arkansas became number 13, right? Yeah, okay, so that's good news. I was, two things happened in that legislature that I considered very profound. One is, two days before we went into that legislature, I was at home and I was getting ready to go and for some reason the Lord put it on my heart that I should kneel in prayer in the rotunda. I'll be honest with you, I don't normally kneel in prayer. It's a little uncomfortable to me. It's just not what I normally do. I normally bow my head in prayer, but I just felt it really strong in my heart. So we were in that rotunda, and you could watch this video online. There are about 70 of us. There are more here today. You guys are doing a better job, but they had 70 there. And I, we knelt in prayer. I knelt in prayer and led them in prayer right there in the rotunda of the legislature. I want you to know what a powerful statement that makes, because people aren't saying, oh, that's a church group, or that's a Christian organization, or that's the Right to Life group. It's just some people who love their country kneeling in prayer in the rotunda that makes a powerful statement. A little later in the day, I was walking across the rotunda, and I was approached by a senator there. Her name's Cecile Bledsoe, great supporter of ours. We had already passed the Senate. We hadn't yet passed the House. And so I got introduced to her, and I thanked her for her support and really appreciated her for being in the fight for us. And she said, I don't, you can't thank me. You, I have to thank you. I have to thank your people. And I said, why? And she said, I've been in this legislature for 12 sessions. I have never, never in 12 sessions received a single thank you note. And your people sent me thank you notes. I've just never seen anything like it. You have no idea what that means. Everybody yells at us. Everybody hates us. Everybody screams at us. Everybody complains to us. And even when we do something they like, they don't even pay attention. Like we're just, we're supposed to do what they like. And she said, so you're, there's something different about your people. And I just want you to know how proud that makes me. For me, that's the thing that inspires me the most, is that y'all are out there, you're fighting for your country, but you're doing it from a place of love and kindness. And that is extraordinary. That is light in this world. And more than anything else, that's what we're meant to do. That's why I'm here. I know that's why you guys are here. I appreciate y'all very much. Thank you. I, I would like to, if you guys have any questions, I'm sure the Colonel will be happy to answer a few questions about anything, anything you guys want, politics, if it's about this, if it's about Convention of States, about what's going on in D.C., I'm sure we'd be happy to take a few minutes of questions if you guys would like. Just me. I'm nervous, but I got a question here on this. As far as we're reaching all the different states and getting different people, what are some of the methods that we're using to do this? I mean, how are we reaching these people? You're reaching uh, grassroots all across the country? Yeah, how are we getting to these people? How are we reaching the younger generation accordingly yep. and everything else besides just the older generation? Your question is perfectly timed, especially about the younger people. Right. So this week we launched uh, a partnership with Ben Shapiro. So Ben is talking about it. Uh, yesterday, the, the last count I saw for yesterday is we had 4,500 petitions, 4,500 petitions came in yesterday, new volunteers from Ben Shapiro's show. He talked about it again today. I haven't seen the numbers today, but that will bring in a whole new team of young people from all across the country. We do a lot of work on Facebook. Uh, new to us is relatively new, but we're having a lot of success is Instagram. Uh, you know, like as an old guy, I just don't use it much, but that's like Facebook, by the way, is considered for old people now. <laughs> Who knew, right? I just figured it out. Uh, and so we've got a whole team of young people that include Garrett back there that are managing our 
Instagram account, and we just passed 10,000 people on there. So the message is spreading among younger people. Shapiro will do the best at doing that. Ultimately, though, I would add, it's going to have to go mass media. I mean, ultimately, we're going to have to be advertising on Fox News and CBS and ABC. Is it pretty well in stone what all the details of this new amendment are going to be? Uh, all the details of what's going to be in the convention, you mean? Well, here's the way it works. I wouldn't say it's set in stone because then it wouldn't be a convention. A convention is a deliberative body. What is set in stone is the subject matter lines, what I call the rails of convention. There are three things that can be discussed in convention. Anything that would put fiscal limitations on the federal government. So that would include things like a balanced budget amendment, like making them use generally accepted accounting principles, like putting uh, tax and spending caps on the federal government. Anything that would limit their ability to move fiscally is available under that. The second thing is anything that would impose term limits. That's term limits on Congress, term limits on the judiciary, and term limits on the bureaucracy, any federal officials. And then the last thing is anything that would impose jurisdictional uh, limitations or limitations on the scope and power of the federal government. In other words, saying to the federal government, you aren't allowed to do that stuff anymore. So a very specific one for me that is kind of one of my fantasies is the federal government should not be involved in education, right? So, uh, you know, in some circles that could be a really radical thing to say, so I want to explain to you why I say that, right? Because if we can just say that like a red meat talking point and everybody applauds, but I want you to have more depth than that. When the University of Virginia was being founded, uh, Thomas Jefferson received a letter from one of his friends, William Henry Lee, and the, in the letter, Lee recommends to Jefferson that he get public financing, federal government money for University of Virginia. Now remember, Jefferson is the greatest early proponent of public education in the United States of America. He says we got to have an educated public or we're not going to save our, our, preserve our republic for the long haul. He's a big believer in public education. Henry Lee says you got to get money from the federal government. Jefferson's response is very telling. He says, well, we can't do that because that's unconstitutional. We would need to amend the Constitution. So here we are, 243 years later, there is no education amendment, right? So how do we get there? And this is really important how we got there because this goes to the crux of the problem with the federal government today. The Commerce Clause, you guys are familiar with the Commerce Clause, right? It's really simple. It says the federal government has the power to regulate interstate commerce. So here's the deal about the Interstate Commerce Clause. In 1787, when these men were debating this idea of the Interstate Commerce Clause, first of all, why were they debating that? And the reason is, New York and New Jersey were about to have a war. I mean, literally a war. They were going to come to military blows over tariffs, right? So two of the states were fighting, and so they said, we got to give the federal government some power to moderate this stuff, to be the mediator, and to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen. Language matters a lot. The Constitution is a legal document. The law is an art of language, right? And so what it meant matters. We're all originalists. We believe in original intent. 1787, if you were to ask Daniel Webster what regulate means, first of all, I'd tell you go read my dictionary, right? But if you open a 1787 dictionary and you look up regulate, it means to regularize. There was no such thing as a regulatory agency. There were no books of regulations. There was no federal register, right? There, there were regulatory bureaucracies. That hadn't even entered their minds that people would subject themselves to this. So what they meant is we want to give the federal government the power to regulate or to regularize trade, smooth it out, make it work between the states. The second word that really matters there is commerce. 
Because today we say commerce and we mean business, right? That's what everybody would say, commerce is business. In 1787, commerce means the shipment of goods. That's what it means if you look it up. And so what they gave Congress the power to do was regulate the shipment of goods across state lines to smooth things out. Not to regulate everything under the sun, not to control everything, not to tell us what to do, but in the 1930s that power starts to be expanded and expanded and expanded. The first case, and this is important so you know how ridiculous this is, in 1931 there's a case called Wickard v. Filburn, farmers growing wheat for his own consumption in Ohio, and the federal government dings him and fines him for growing too much wheat. It's his own wheat on his own property for his own consumption. And he says, you can't do that, you have no authority, and they said, Yes, we do, under the Interstate Commerce Clause. And he said, Interstate Commerce, I'm not selling anything. I'm not in business. It's nothing's leaving the state. And they said, aha, but you are not buying wheat on the interstate markets because you're growing it for yourself. So now you are affecting interstate commerce. In other words, what that means in plain English is not doing business equals doing business. That's crazy. That's that came from your Supreme Court, and then a whole series of cases follow on. Department of Commerce, Department of Energy, USDA, FDA, EPA, Department of Education, all authorized under that interpretation of the Commerce Clause. So if we think that the federal government has too much power, do we think the federal government has too much power? Yeah. So if we think the federal government has too much power, we've got to redefine the Interstate Commerce Clause. So that's one of the things that we can do under that scope, power, and jurisdiction. I know that was a long answer, but that's an important area, really. Yes, ma'am, one more, and then maybe we'll close it out, Bruce. Is that about right? Uh, all the time you need. Questions coming. Okay. how they have redefined words to pull this off and that the oldest blacks law dictionary does not contain the same definition for example of money which is based on gold and silver that they have deliberately changed definitions so that they could sleaze through and do all this well i would say i agree with you yes i'm super aware of that i was an english literature major i have a love of language and i just words matter to me a lot and as a lawyer one of the good things about lawyers, and there aren't a lot, but one of the good things about lawyers is we understand and love language, uh, mostly for bad manipulation purposes. <laughs> but one of the things that is true about language is Marxists uh, understand that control of language is necessary for control of human beings. And so, again, this is sort of a red meat thing. Sometimes I hate it when I say, oh, the Marxists, because everybody throws out the term Marxist, but the truth is, Marxist theory requires control of language. Control of language allows you to control how and what people think. And so redefining terms is very important to the Marxists. And so I think that's something we should pay attention to and we should resist. We have to know that that's going on, that language is being changed out from under us all the time or being used in a way that's not truthful all the time. One of the greatest examples of this is the idea of a liberal, right? You guys are all liberals. Sorry, don't throw anything at me. We're all classical liberals. That's what we are. I mean, that's a term that got stolen from us. We're liberals. We believe in allowing people to live how they want to live. We believe in freedom and liberty, right? And that's not what the left believes. So that's a term that's been stolen or redefined. And so we got to be very careful of the language that gets used against us. Another example of that that I'm personally really concerned about right now, I have conversations with my daughter about this all the time at Hillsdale College, the idea of calling people racist uh, has been redefined what that means, right? And so racist now means they disagree with you. So you're a racist. 
It actually used to mean something. And this is really important because, by the way, there are still racists in this country. And so what happens when we take a term like that and we neuter it in a way that we can't use it to point at people who are actually racists anymore? Right, it devalues the term and it devalues the concept. And what it does is it covers for evil. I mean, it's really bad. Uh, you know, here's the irony of, of one of these terms. We get called, I get called a Nazi all the time, right? And I think it's clear to you guys I'm a Christian, but what you probably don't know is I'm Jewish, right? So I'm a Jewish Christian who gets called a Nazi. <laughs> they do it with an entirely straight face, too. It's, it's... So we laugh, okay? We laugh, but that's important. Here's why it's important, because there are people in this world today who believe in Nazi ideology. And so if you call me a Nazi, what do we call them? And what that means is we have no language for them. And that's really dangerous. So I, I'm very concerned about the use of language. What's that? It gives them cover. It gives them cover, absolutely. So it is a, when we neuter language like that, we cover for evil. And we should be very careful about that. And when people, what, what I would say is if people call you a racist and you know you're not a racist, then you should fight back very vehemently against that. Yes, ma'am. Mark, I almost died last July, and it got me thinking differently. I reorganized my priorities, and what if someone told you you had seven days to live? What would you do? What would you recommend that volunteers do to affect the cause for a convention of states? Well, that's pretty short order. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I mean, I'm just going to speak for me personally. The only thing I could think to do is pray a lot and to get right with God, and, and hopefully you do that every day anyway. I spend a lot of time in prayer. Um, you know, it's kind of, that's a super personal question in a way for me. I had an interesting event this year. My lifelong best friend, his name is Mike Ruthenberg. A bunch of you know the story. He's the chief operating officer of our organization. And last, I want to say it was a year, it's close to a year ago, eight months ago, he was diagnosed with, uh, with fatal brain cancer. And so we've been best friends forever. And I got this call. We were getting ready to go to a big political meeting. And I got a call. I was actually at the store buying some new shirts for this meeting we were traveling to together. I remember being in the dressing room. And I remember getting this call. And he just said, yeah, they just found a tumor the size of a tennis ball in my head. And so, of course, I didn't go to the meeting. I flew down to San Diego to be with him. And uh, so things get into perspective real quickly, right? And the thing, what I saw there was a family full of love and grace that all came together around him. I saw the miracle of God heal him because the surgeon told him he had a glioblastoma, which is what killed John McCain, which is 100% fatal, by the way, 14-month life expectancy. I watched them do the surgery, come out, it's clean, it's not cancer. I listened to literally thousands upon thousands of people around the country praying for him because we put it out through our network. So I would say if you got seven days left, for me, I, I don't think I'd be paying attention to politics. I just think I'd be spending time with God and my family. Yes, ma'am. Well, he's bringing the microphone up to you. Then you don't have to shout. I got a loud voice, so it doesn't matter. My wife calls it a big mouth, though. So. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to piggyback on this lovely lady's comment or question. I think I understand what she's saying goes a little deeper than what do you do in seven days? What if you have 50, 57 years left to live? How do we as volunteers now move forward even after the, the um, 
spill his past? What do we continue to do to be proactive I love in helping other people <laughs> and each yep. other to stay motivated and excited and not give up until all 50 have awesome. acquiesced? So there's a bigger, yeah, that is such a great question. Thank you. We have new buttons that we're putting out in the states that have passed. And they look very similar, but on the top it says self-governance, and on the bottom it says it's more than a convention. Right, because there's something that we're trying to do that's a lot bigger than convention of states. You know, some of you know I came out of the Tea Party movement. Uh, you know, Alan was super popular in the Tea Party movement. So that's kind of, we got roots in there. And the thing that I learned in the Tea Party movement is that we had a lot of noise, we had a lot of enthusiasm, we even elected some really good people, but we had no plan. We had literally, because, and it's not a criticism, we just didn't know what we were doing. I'd never been engaged in politics. I led one of the biggest organizations. I had no idea what I was doing. So, yeah, it shows what you can accomplish with God's grace, right? <clears throat> so, now we have a plan. And the plan is this, is the restoration of self-governance in America. And what that means very specifically is, while you're in the fight here, what you're doing is, if you consider Convention of States to be a training exercise for your army. Colonel knows what I'm talking about. You go out on field exercises, you're not really fighting, but you're out there learning how to fight, right? This is just the beginning of the fight. The convention is teaching you how to organize by your state legislative district, which is the most powerful way to organize in America. That's where you have the most powers in your state legislative district. It's teaching you how to network with other people. It's teaching you how to build a narrative to know how to talk about the issues. It's teaching you how to come here and not be intimidated, that you are important, that you can come talk to your state legislators and make a difference. All of this, we're in the learning phase. And you're gonna pass the resolution here, and I say you're gonna pass it this year, and you're gonna pass it, and then you're gonna say, now what? And the answer is, you're gonna immediately switch into organizing for other causes that are important here in Mississippi, and I'm gonna support that. <clears throat> we're doing that in other states. We're fighting for property tax reform in Texas right now. I think our Ohio team is in the fight for life there. There's all kinds of other stuff. So what I want you to understand, super important to what you said is, this is just the beginning. You guys are gonna stay involved. The last thing I'll say about that is the most important. This is what's most important. The relationships are what, most, what is most important. You know, people say that we shouldn't mix politics and religion. Anybody ever hear that? Right? We hear that in church all the time and stuff. Okay, so I think that's, completely backwards. Here's why I think it's backwards. If you know the root word in Greek for politics, the definition of the root word for politics means essentially how people organize to influence one another. All right, the polis is the people. And so politics is how, my wife says politics is poly means many and ticks means politicians, but I, that's not the real definition. <laughs> Pardon to the good politicians here in the office. But so what it really means is how we organize, uh, get together to influence other people. If you go back to the root Greek for religion, it means how we organize around a set of moral principles. So I want you to think about what politics is without religion is organizing to influence other people without a set of moral principles. So that's just wrong. I think that's evil. So I don't believe in politics without religion. So that's what we're doing at its foundation is there's a great awakening taking place in America. You know, Colonel West and I have the privilege of traveling all over and meeting people. And everywhere we go, we meet people like you who are incredible Americans, who are doing great things for their country, who 
love God, love each other, love their families. They're full of genius and creativity and passion. And then you look on the news and it seems like you guys don't exist, right? But you're everywhere. And the reason that you're everywhere and the reason that you're rising up, you guys are familiar with Whitfield and the Great Awakening, right? No American Revolution without George Whitfield and the Great Awakening and the other pastors who are traveling across the country. I will tell you that that Great Awakening is taking place in America today. You do not need to long for it. It is taking place right now. It's taking place in churches that are becoming openly political. It is taking place in rooms like this. It is taking place in legislatures where I see prayer circles. It is taking place in the White House where there's more Bible study taking place in the White House than any time in modern history. So be encouraged. That's the fundamental task that we have. Organizing as self-governing citizens are really important, but the underlying foundation is there has to be a great awakening in America. With Bruce, I think I'll close it out with that. Thank you. God Thank bless you, Mark. you guys. Thank you so much. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.